0: following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I know all of you in the room have experienced levels of pressure. Sometimes it's relational pressure. Sometimes it's spiritual pressure of working through a situation or battling a particular kind of sin that kind of besets you. Uh, I know during different types of life and seasons of life there are things that as you get older you begin to lose stuff, you know, the key card to the room or some little thing you packed. Where is it? And you experience the pressure of that. And sometimes the pressure is overwhelming. Uh, talking to people at the pad- on the patio between services, you know, people all of a sudden diagnosed with cancer and other issues going on in their life, and they're working that through. They're trusting the Lord, but they're working that through and experiencing that pressure. And because, like a ton of bricks, all of you have experienced that pressure, you probably can identify with Lady Twinkletoes. Now you say, who is Lady Twinkletoes? I'm so glad you asked. She's a dark, elusive beauty, Delivered to the LA Zoo in order to mate with King Arthur, both of them being black rhinoceroses. The zookeeper, Gary Richmond, writes about the arrival of Lady Twinkletoes and the unique pressure that she experienced. You say, What was the pressure? Well, to get to the zoo, she had to be shipped on a cargo ship. Then she had to be offloaded and put into a specific crate, loaded onto a truck, and basically driven 40 miles through the LA freeway system. So by the time, with all those new smells and new noises, she arrived at the zoo, she was in a panic state. Now they knew she was in a panic state, so she began ramming the door of her crate, and it began to fray and chip away, and it was breaking loose, so they thought, we got to get her in her area really quick. Well, to do that, they had to have a crane. So they got this crane, and it was all ready to go. They hooked her up, and they had to bring her up about 25 feet over The wall and then back down into her area to be able to release her from the crate. Well, as she got up in the air, that was it. She had reached this stress point. She knew that her life was in massive danger, so she began to ram that door in a very much a pattern and actually broke open the door while she's 20 feet up. All true. And so now the zookeepers and the doctors are going nuts because they're going, if she jumps out of that crate... Right at this point, at 20 feet, she's going to die. She will die from her own weight hitting the ground. So the crane operator is going as fast as he can to get her to 10 feet, 8 feet, 6 feet, gets down to 4 feet, and she said, that's it, and she makes a leap for it. And she hits the ground with a thud, and everybody gasped and wondered what was going to happen, and she got up. Well, now she is so agitated and so out of her mind and so mad and afraid, all combined with all that pressure on her. She sees a pile of rocks that have been made in her exhibit and she charges it for about 25 feet full speed and hits that pile of rocks and actually moves them and collapses on the ground almost semi unconscious. And then she's so mad that she sees another pile of rocks. She gets up and rams that one, collapsing on the ground and getting up a little bit slower. And then what happened is what caused everyone's mouth to drop open. Because they began to see in the morning sun that her skin began to turn red. And what was happening was she was on maximum stress, maximum basically fear and rage and all those emotions, that she was basically bleeding to death externally. The capillaries in her skin were bursting And blood was making its way to the surface, and she was bleeding on the outside. This happens to hippos, it happens to elephants under this kind of stress, and it happens to rhinoceroses. And so they're all standing there hoping that she's going to be okay, and everybody stayed really silent. And what happened is she genuinely and effectively calmed down and lived at the L.A. Zoo for another 34 years. Now the reason I share that story with you is that when the doctor said that she's experiencing maximum stress, I want you to hear another doctor. His name is Dr. Luke. And he writes about Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 22 verse 44 and says these words. Take a look at your outline if you would. You'll see it there very, very clearly. It says this. He says, He was praying. Being in agony, He was praying very fervently. And His sweat became like what? Drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You who love Christ this morning, have you considered the pressure that Jesus Christ experienced prior to His crucifixion? Have you ever tried to imagine how it must be and how agonizing it was For the holy, righteous, sinless God to be a sin-bearer. For God Himself who knows about what holy wrath is, knows it firsthand because He's God, to then anticipate experiencing God's holy wrath for your sin upon Himself. What was that like? You ever go down that road? Because this morning, we're going to swim with Christ in some very deep waters. We're going to see Jesus up close and personal as He experiences pressure far beyond anything that you and I will ever experience. His bearing sin is to rescue you from your sin. His suffering wrath is to keep you from the wrath of hell. His agony is to encourage you in the midst of your agonies that you're going through right now. And His substitution is is supposed to help you to substitute your fear, your struggles, with confidence in His truth. Today, I want you to witness our Lord as He agonizes in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're not there already, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 36, and please follow along in your outline that's provided for you, because it's Thursday evening of the final week of his earthly ministry, it is very late. The Lord and his men just enjoyed the Passover celebration, and they just inaugurated the very first communion service. The Lord announced he'd be betrayed, and then Judas the betrayer left the upper room to inform the religious leaders exactly where the Garden of Gethsemane is and that Christ would be there. Christ, in humility, washes the men's feet, and in pride... The men argue over who's the greatest. And Jesus taught his men the entire upper room discourse in John 13-17, through 17, left the upper room. While traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane, he informed his men that they all will desert him and that Peter will deny him. So now in Mark 14, we've all arrived and the pressure of what Christ is about to face comes crashing down on him. And I want you to read aloud This passage from your outline so we can read it together okay so here we go verses 32 to 36 of mark 14 let's read it together here we go they came to a place named gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here until i have prayed and he took with them peter and james and john and began to be very distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and keep watch And he went a little beyond them, and fell to the ground, and began to pray, that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba Father, all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's pray, would you? Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, that you would help us to see our Savior, that you would help us to see what He went through to provide salvation for us, and that we would love Him more deeply than we ever have as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look at point number one in your outline? The place of prayer over the coming cross. The place of prayer. Look at verse 32. They came to a place named what? Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. There are a lot of olive trees there. Uh, And it's referred to in the scripture, it's more than just an olive grove. Uh, Probably the modern equivalent to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's called a garden as well, is uh, the freeway rest stop. You know, you're traveling along, you need a place to rest, refresh yourself, use the restroom, get a little food, sit in the shade for a while. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane was. It's a gathering place. It wasn't just a grove of trees but a place where people would meet. And we know that they went there often. And we know that because John chapter 18 verse 2 talks about Judas and it says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, referring to Gethsemane, for Jesus had, what, often met there with his disciples. The garden is one of their favorite gathering spots to be together and to escape the crowded city for them to discuss things. But here... Christ will experience a divine struggle that defies comprehension. Next to the cross, are you ready? This is the greatest agony that has ever been experienced on planet Earth. It will help you to see God, it will be like open heart surgery on Jesus Christ to see what drives him internally. And if your heart craves to know our Lord Jesus Christ in a more intimate way, this is a passage you need to return to and a passage you need to understand as best you can. They are deep waters, but they're good ones. And during this second greatest agony, Christ, who is God incarnate, is anticipating God's wrath being poured out on him. I want you to understand what I just said. He's God, so he knows about the wrath of God. He knows what this wrath is going to be and He is repelled by it because He knows. We sometimes think we know about the wrath of God but Christ knows the wrath of God. And He's perfectly holy and now He's going to be the bearer of what is against holiness against God's character. He's going to bear sin. Wow and the pressure is so great that it would literally without exaggeration physically killed Jesus Christ in this scenario that we just read had the father not intervened had the father not intervened Christ would have died at this moment and it would have been premature so understand it's why Jesus expresses number 2 in your outline the priority of prayer over the coming cross The priority of prayer over the coming cross. Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. They came. uh, That's Jesus and the eleven. Judas is not with them. He's plotting Christ's arrest here. Probably near the entrance of the garden, Jesus says very forcefully, he speaks with purpose here, he tells the eleven to remain at the entrance location until he's done praying. But While Jesus goes to war, the disciples go to sleep. While they snore, Christ is engaged in a life-threatening, agonizingly difficult spiritual battle. Now, you know about Christ's battles with Satan. He's obviously, through his earthly ministry, being tempted along the course. But there are three times in specific that Christ is battling the enemy. The first one was the temptation in the wilderness. Remember that? And there are three phases that the enemy brings to him. The last is, just bow down and worship me, and you won't have to go to the cross. The second time is with the Apostle Peter, and Peter says, you're not going to die, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because that's the second direct to not go to the cross. And the third direct temptation is right here. It's right here, the agony of the garden. In fact, the parallel account in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, it says, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And what he's referring to there is it's literally the hour of the power of the darkness. And those three definitive articles are telling us this is a specific attack of Satan. And again, to keep Jesus from the cross to accomplish your salvation. And here in the garden... Satan hopes to drive Jesus to say to the Father, I can't do it! Or to drive Jesus to say to the Father, I won't do it! Because it's so overwhelming. And John MacArthur says, quote, If Satan succeeds in that, then hell is the only place that people will live forever, heaven will be empty, God's word will be untrue, the promise of salvation a lie, and Satan will be the true sovereign. End quote. This is the battle facing Christ, so he goes to prayer. The enemy is pouring out on Christ his greatest temptation, the crushing weight of the cross is bearing down on Christ. The desertion of his friends is imminent. The betrayal of Judas is imminent. But beyond that, verse 32 says, Jesus pours out his soul before God. Sit here. Until I have prayed. Get this. Jesus Christ needs to intimately connect with the person that He's enjoyed perfect oneness with for all eternity. Even though He's one with the Father, He must pray. Which brings us to number three in your outline. The purpose of prayer over the coming cross. The purpose of prayer. Read verse 33. Look at it. And He took with Him Peter and James and John. There's a definite article with each name, which is unusual, because he's singling out, naming individually the Peter, the James, and the John to accompany him. These three were the special ones who then witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter. These three are the ones who uh, witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration and the glories of Christ. And these three plus Andrew were the ones who were taught about the end of the world in Mark chapter 13. These three had a unique relationship with Christ. And why did he then leave the eight by the entrance and take Peter and James and John deeper into the garden with him? Well, my study has led me to believe three main reasons. First, to have the support of intimate friendship. Listen, when you're going through a crisis, do you want the support of intimate friendship? Sure you do. Jesus is God, can I hear an amen? amen? But he is also 100% man. And being 100% God, 100% human, Christ felt the need for companionship, the desire for friendship, and the hope of support during a deep trial. Just like you, just like me. Listen, Christ not only needed food and drink and clothing and shelter and sleep, but he also desired human fellowship. He did. So the God-man invites the inner three to remain close to him for his encouragement, for his strength, as he is overwhelmed by the greatest pressure ever experienced. These three have seen the glories of the transfiguration, and now they're going to see the deepest agony of his soul. They're going to see it. Why does Jesus have only these three? Secondly, to grow by learning a truth to later be shared or later be recorded. These three were chosen to learn a lesson. To know how important it is to pray so you can triumph in, in, in temptation. Listen, don't miss this. In order to triumph in temptation, you need to pray. In order to triumph in trial, you need to pray. That's right. And this is really made clear here. Sadly, these three are going to learn the the way that I learn it through failure. Anybody with me on that? They learn best by failing to pray, failing to to resist temptation. They're going to learn out of the disaster of their prayerlessness. They just declared themselves the champions who would never fail Christ. Peter who said, I would never deny you. But they all fail. Because they all fall asleep during Christ's life and death battle, they learned the lesson of just how important it is to pray. That spiritual strength only comes through the dependent. Let me say it again, write it down. Spiritual strength only comes to the dependent. The dependent. And that's what prayer is, it's dependence. Think about it. If Christ himself needed to pray in the face of temptation, how much more do we need to pray in the face of temptation? Jesus gives his men here a present tense continual imperative command stay awake, keep praying be spiritually alert and ready not for the coming of Judas but for the coming of temptation so when you don't pray you are not prepared for temptation when you don't pray you're not prepared for trial one more time when you don't pray you're not prepared for temptation or trial so why the three Well, Christ desired their friendship to be close. He desired them to teach them. And thirdly, to later function as leaders in order to influence others. To influence others. Jesus had them follow Him into the garden because... They were the leaders of the twelve. They're the influencers of the twelve. They are going to learn this important lesson. They're going to pass that truth on to the twelve. Peter, James, and John are the three main leaders. They're going to influence others. And you know it. Are you thinking about it? They're the three who also God, the Holy Spirit, set apart to write New Testament revelation. He wants them there so they can not only influence the twelve, but influence us. Us. Jesus says, come with me. Because you have something to learn. And when you learn it, you can, one, teach it to the rest, and two, record it for others like you and me over the centuries. And what they're going to learn is mind-blowing. Prepare to have your brain explode. Are you ready? Number four, the divine pressure over the coming cross. The divine pressure over the coming cross. As Jesus is going off to pray, verse 33 says, He began to be very distressed. you see it there? Very distressed and troubled. Verse 34, And He said to them, My soul is deeply what? Grieved. To the point of what? Death. Thank you all three of you. So remain here and keep watch. So he's distressed, he's troubled, he's deeply grieved. Focus on those three dramatic phrases. You see them there. Distressed. Distressed comes from a verb that actually, write this down, it means amazed. Which is a very, very difficult word to associate with Jesus Christ because he's God. He knows everything. How can he be amazed? He's all-knowing. There is something, though, the God-man has never experienced. There is an event that is completely alien to Christ, and it's about to happen. Notice verse 33, it causes Jesus to be, secondly, troubled. Now this is a very strong term, and it means this, to be anguished to a level that cannot be comprehended. To be anguished to a level that cannot be comprehended. What is causing this? Well, some have said, well, Jesus' uh, desertion, the desertion of the twelve, or the eleven. Uh, Judas' betrayal. Uh, Israel's rejection. The uncoming unjust trials. Six of them are awaiting Christ. The mockery. Uh, the scourging. The, the crucifixion or dying. Is that it? Well, those do cause trouble. They do cause sorrow. But this is amazed anguish. And it's far more deep and far more painful to our Savior. Well, what is it? Christ is anticipating His role as a sacrifice for sin. To become sin for you and for me. To bear our sin upon Himself. This is completely alien. God has never known sin. Now stay with me theologically. Christ was temptable. In fact, so much so that in the process of temptation, you will eventually collapse under the weight of that temptation. But Christ would never collapse, never sin. So the full bore of temptation, the full weight of it, the full power of it, He would experience far beyond what you and I would ever experience. So he's temptable, and yet because he is 100% God, he could never actually sin because he's God, and God can't sin. This is the doctrine of impeccability. Christ was impeccable. Jesus Christ cannot sin, but that does not mean he did not experience the full weight of temptation. Christians, we struggle with sin And even though our old nature is dead, and by the way, when you're a Christian, your old nature is dead. Romans 6, 6 says it is dead. It is so strong, though, sin in our life, the very memory of it and the nature of it affects us so deeply. And that's why we struggle to do what is right and not sin, the sin residuum. But that is not the same with our Savior. It's not the same with Him. Though he felt the intensity of temptation at a deeper level than any of us will ever have been tempted because of his holy nature, his sinless purity, his total righteousness, his perfect obedience. Here, Jesus struggles only because of the power of perfect holiness. Get this. God the Father is asking Christ the Son to embrace sin as a sin bearer. The first person of the Trinity is asking the second person of the Trinity to basically, not as a sinner, but a sin bearer. To be that. To pay the wages of sin and to accept our punishment for our sin. Now you know what the Bible says. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Take a look at it. It says this. He made him who knew what? No sin to become sin. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. He would be pierced. This is what Troy shared in his testimony. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. You say, yeah, yeah, Chris, I get it. Jesus died for me. No, 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 friends. It is much deeper than that. The punishment for sin is not only death, but bearing, experiencing, suffering under God's wrath for sin. The wrath that we deserve for our sin against God was not a momentary expression of wrath. We think about wrath as a moment where wrath and then you're done. That's not the point here. The point here is we deserve God's wrath poured out on us, you and I, sinners, for all eternity. Our just punishment for our sinful nature and our sinful choices is an eternity of God's wrath against us. We deserve the torments of God's wrath poured out on us in hell forever. Are you getting this? Forever eternal wrath. When Jesus bears the wrath for our sin against Himself in our place, He is bearing an eternity full of wrath for every individual He died for. In eternity of God's wrath for each believer. For every sinner He died for, Christ took that sinner's eternal wrath. All of your future eternity and hell He took upon Himself. For the millions of sinners for whom He died, Jesus took the millions of eternities of wrath on the cross and He bore that wrath for His children past, present, and future all at once on the cross. See, how could He do it? He's God. He's perfect. He's sinless. He can bear that. You can't, and I can't. We cannot earn our way. We cannot be good enough. We could not take this punishment. Only Christ could do it on our behalf. Now you can begin to understand why Christ is experiencing amazed, anguish now you get why his struggle was so great this is a divine pressure that you will never experience but it is a holy pressure our savior bore fully for you it is so overwhelming that Christ is also thirdly deeply grieved you see it there in your outline deeply grieved he was distressed one he was troubled too. He's deeply grieved, verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of what? Death. Thank you. One more time, to the point of what? Death. Death. So he says, remain here, keep watch, keep praying. Deeply grieved describes the action of being surrounded by sorrow. Now, all of you in this room at, probably at some point have experienced being surrounded by sorrow. If that's all you know at that particular moment is sorrow or grief or the struggle of that. And that's exactly what this word is. The Greek word deeply grieved is perilipos. And that prefix peri basically is perimeter or periphery. And what he's saying is that Christ is submerged. He's engulfed. He's encircled with grief and pressure. It's horrible. Deeply grieved. It is so bad that Jesus... And this is God speaking God's word here, so we know it's accurate. Christ is grieved to the point of, say it one more time, death. Christ has reached the very limits of pressure. The very limits of emotion, the limits of grief, the limits of distress, and the limits of anxious trouble. He is truly about to physically die right here. Right here now. Luke 22 describes the pressure so intensely on his body that he began to sweat drops of blood the same verse we read at the beginning Luke 22:44 and being in agony he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground it's called hematidrosis hematidosh- it's under immense stress what happens is the capillaries gorge they inflate and then they explode And the blood comes out the sweat glands. This is the maximum amount of human stress. This is the greatest amount of stress that any human can endure. The pressure is so great that the Father actually, in Luke 22, 43 tells us that He sent an angel to strengthen Christ so He would not prematurely die in order to rescue Him from premature death. Christ might have bled to death just from the stress of this moment. That's how much agony He is about to experience. He knows what's coming. How could our Savior not be deeply grieved? Not only is our Jesus perfectly holy, but about to bear the ugliness of unholy sin... But Jesus is God, so He knows exactly the justice of God's wrath against sin. And now, He is about to have a million eternities of wrath, of God's righteous wrath poured out on Him. And plus, He is holy, and therefore is bearing all of this, because He knows what's coming. It is unbelievably painful and stressful. How could He not be deeply grieved to the point of death? When for all eternity, Jesus was perfectly one with the Father and the Spirit. He was in perfect communion. He was in perfect fellowship. He was in perfect intimacy. He was in perfect relationship. But now, for the first time, and I cannot explain it, in some manner, He's separated because of sin, but not just any sin, your sin. Jesus did all of this for you, for his children. And in the midst of this battle, he commands his closest friends, verse 34, remain here and keep watch. What did they hear? Number five in your outline, the plea over the coming cross, the plea over the coming cross, verse 35, what's he do? He went a little beyond them. He fell to the ground. He began to pray. And if that were possible, that this hour might pass by Him. Pass Him by. Jesus goes beyond the three in the garden, falls to the ground in prayer, and in agony was so great, He couldn't stand up. you ever been in that situation? Your agony, your situation, your trauma is so great, you go, i got to sit down. Well, this is even greater than that, because He can't stand. In fact, Mark tells us, that he went a little beyond them. And Luke 22 tells us and clarifies that Jesus is only a stone's throw away from the disciples. From the four Gospels, we understand that Jesus first, Luke 22, went to his knees, and then Matthew 26, he fell on his face. And the Greek fell paints a vivid picture of how Christ is falling to the ground. Can you imagine the three as they're watching this? Stained with blood, him falling to his knees and then falling to his face, buckling under this pressure. He doesn't cry. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. He prays. He prays. And his prayer is not because he's fearing a dark destiny or because of the coming physical suffering. He is praying because he knows the horror that he's about to experience being somehow, in some way, separated from the Father, as he bears also the ugliness of our sin upon himself and is punished there. Jesus himself is about to become the object of divine wrath of God against sin. And in this prayer, he's anticipating what's going to happen on the cross when He says in Mark 15, My God, My God, why hast Thou what? Forsaken Me. Now, theologians cannot explain to you what's happening here. Jesus never ceases to be 100% God and one with the Father and the Spirit, but there's something going on here that is profound and deep And so agonizing that he would cry out. What does Jesus ask here? Look at verse 35. He began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. His agony was such that Jesus falls to the ground before the Father in such great anguish, praying if it's possible that this coming hour might pass him by. Jesus is asking, Father, is there another way to accomplish my mission? Another way. What is the hour that might pass Him by? Is it the fear of not conquering sin or death? No. Is it asking the Father whether He has the power to let Jesus kind of pass on the cross? No. Is it the agony of crucifixion? Probably. But I think... And I believe the text is telling us that the greatest agony here is the horrible, excruciating pain of bearing God's righteous wrath for horrific sin, and to somehow experience some form of separation from the Father, and to experience that for us. At the coming cross, the sinless Son of God will take your sins upon Himself. This hour, He's saying to the Father, is there another way? Can I pass by on bearing the weight of sin? Can I pass on bearing your wrath for the sins of your own? The hour is coming. Are you ready? When He's praying, the hour is coming. It's nine hours away from this moment. It's just nine hours away can I let this hour pass by me? Can I fulfill my messianic mission in some other way than sin bearing, than wrath bearing, than some form of separation from the oneness that I've had for all eternity? And as Christ continues to pray, He asks number six in the outline, the perfect petition over the coming cross. The perfect petition, the perfect request. What does He say in verse 36? He says, and He was saying, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Look at what he says in the form of three keys to live by and to pray by. First, intimacy. He says, Abba, Father. Abba means... Everybody know what it means? It means Daddy. If you were over in Hawaii, it would be cuckoo. It's a a term of intimacy and affection. In fact... It is a term of familiarity. No God-fearing, godly Jew would ever call God Father, let alone call Him Abba. Within the triune God, there's such incredible, perfect intimacy, perfect affection, and perfect oneness. In order to glorify God, this kind of unity is that's found in the triune God, is is what God calls us to be in our marriages. There will be moments when you can experience that oneness that God designed for marriage. And it is under the Spirit of God that you can be one in the Lord. And God wants that oneness and prays for that oneness from us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as a local church, we are to be One as He is one, He prays in His high priestly prayer. That oneness we're to pursue. All one heart, one mind. And our Lord calls upon this intimacy of oneness that He has with the Father as if pleading for that intimate love and unity to rescue Him. And then He makes secondly a petition. Take a look at it. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. All things are possible for you. That is true. All things are possible for God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. God can do the impossible. Amen. Amen. God can get us on the property when He wants to. Amen. Amen. That's right. And God, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, whatever load is bared upon you, whatever crisis you're facing physically, relationally, whatever, God can do the impossible. He can remove it any time He wants. It's there intentionally. It's never by accident. And understand, Jesus is affirming that truth of the Father, that He can do whatever He wants in heaven or earth, consistent with His character. Always consistent with His character. But God could not allow Christ to miss the cross. And so when Jesus prays, all things are possible for you, then adds, remove this cup from me, that's a problem. If Christ doesn't go to the cross, then Satan wins. Heaven is empty, hell is full. The Bible isn't true. The promises are lies. And there is no salvation for anyone if Christ doesn't go to the cross. God will not go back on His Word. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There needs to be a final, sufficient, acceptable, perfect Lamb of God sacrifice and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God wants this cup removed. Do you see that there? Cup is an Old Testament symbol of God's wrath. In fact, Jesus earlier asked his men, Can you drink the cup that I am about to drink? The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Christ is about to drink the cup of wrath, and he soon does. Charles Spurgeon says it with his amazing eloquence. He said it best. He said, quote, it seems as if hell were put into his cup. Christ seized that cup, and in one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He has to drink the cup of wrath coming from his Father, and that is something he never experienced before, resulting in his anguished petition. But amazingly, Christ responds with, thirdly, submission. Submission. Christ responds with, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is mind-blowing. Jesus is stressed to the point of death. He's anguished. He's troubled. His capillaries have burst. He's under maximum stress, but different than our day. Jesus, are you ready, says no to his emotions. Whoa. Christian, you are to say no to your feelings. You are to obey when you don't feel like it. You're to obey even when you have no feelings. Feelings do not drive obedience. Jesus proves it. We don't follow our feelings. You're to follow God. Even when you feel you're about to die, Jesus says no to his desires. He says no to Basically, whatever He wants, His thinking, He's reaffirming the Father, I want what you want. I want your will over my will. I want your word. Listen, there's a big difference between what you feel, what you think, and what you know. Did you get that? What you feel, what you think, and what you know. What you feel, your emotions. What you think, your reasoning. But what you know is what God says. What you think and what you reason, what you feel, are not as absolutely essential to you as to what you know. What you know is what you live by. And Christ lives submissively to His Father at age 12. Christ said, I must be about my Father's business. Early in ministry, Christ said, My food is to do the Father's will. In John 6, Later he says I have come from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me and now in the greatest act of submission and the greatest act of obedience Jesus takes the full chalice of man's sin and God's wrath knowing it means separation from his father and with steel resolve he drinks the entire cup and does so for you. He did it to redeem his own. So let's conclude. One, Jesus knew pressure. Would you agree? The next time you're distressed, next time you leave your keys, you want to freak out, yell at your spouse, next time something crazy goes on, trial, overwhelming news, remember what Christ went through. Remember the agony he experienced. It's far beyond anything. And just for maybe one or two of you, if you are at the end of your rope and God has brought you here today, would you listen to the words of Christ in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Salvation rest. Eternal rest and rest in your heart. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you cry out to Christ to save you? Turn from your sin, and choose to follow Christ. God is sovereign in salvation. You are responsible to respond. Respond. Cry out to Him to change your heart, and to be the one you believe is the only way of salvation, the only way who can rescue you, the only faith that is genuine, the only faith that is God-driven. Every other religion, we're working our way to heaven. Christianity is God did all the work. And we're trusting Him. Stop fighting and surrender to Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, stop striving and depend on the Word. Depend on His Spirit like a little boy. Put your hand in His hand. Like a little girl, put your hand in his hand and say, I can't do this, but you can. You can walk me through this. Number two, Jesus helps us understand emotions. Listen, we Christians have a hard time with emotions. And emotions, he made us emotional beings, and here you see incredible emotion, anguish, sorrow, deep grief, all of that. It is, it is okay to have emotions, but never without trust, and never without... I want your will over mine. Listen, you're never right, nor pleasing to God for yelling matches, for screaming at others, for sorrow without trust. Never. You say, I'm just being honest. No, you're being selfish and sinful. On the other hand, allow believers to grieve. Many times it's the death or departure of a loved one. Allow believers to wrestle with God, to go through times of sober dependence. Number three, Jesus is a model of submission. This is not just for children and parents and wives and citizens. This is God delighting when we come to Him in prayer, but with our prayers, it should always have the caveat, not my will, but yours be done. Amen? That's what it's supposed to be. As you plan, even if the Lord will, say it out loud, affirm it. Your future Depends on it, but your future is in His hands. Singles, trust Him for your future. Families, trust Him with your children. Don't fear today. This is how we're a witness in this watching world, to manifest trust in God when everybody else is afraid. And if Christ can be in such agony, but still say, not your will, but I want want your will, not my will, then that's your target. And number four, Christ's agony should result in your adoration. Don't put your stuff away. Understand, beloved friends, how can we not weep with joy and thanksgiving for what he has done? I mean, don't forget the cost of what he paid, the agony he endured for you, the anguish. He tells you he did this. Are you ready to be your substitute, to die in your place? To suffer God's forever wrath that was meant for you. To choose to be separated in some manner from the Father so that you would not have to be for all eternity. And with all of that, to wash you clean. To make you new. To transform you internally. To forgive all your sins. Will you not worship Him? Love Him more? Thank Him more for His mercy and grace and love? Adore Him. Cherish Him. And how do you do it? Not just with your words. Not just with your heart. Are you ready? You do it with your life. To be a living sacrifice means all that you are and all that you have, saying, Lord, it's all yours. Everything I have is yours. And that's your acceptable form of worship. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word to change our lives, and maybe for one or two, that you would actually draw them to yourself, help them to see their sinfulness, help them to cry out to you, and that you would invade their heart, awaken them, so they can respond to you in repentance and faith. And Father, for all of us, that we would love you and cherish you and worship you and adore you for the depths that you went, that can't even be fathomed by us. But that you did that, so that we could be right with you, that we could be forgiven and cleansed and walk as your children. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased with our response to our worship today, that it would truly be an offering and we'll give you all praise and all glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks and have a great day.